Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent uh, from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Abraham. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, 
he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those other high priests, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. This is the swing pivot point, if you will, of the book of Hebrews. This uh, introduction of Melchizedek happens earlier than this chapter. If you remember back to chapter 5, Jesus is described as a priest in the order of, or in the type of, or uh, pertaining to the manner of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And there, it's briefly mentioned, but in this chapter, the Hebrew writer begins to highlight and emphasize and draw conclusions from and, and make inflections of and, and, and reflect on the nature of that priesthood as informing the aspects of the new covenant, which are deemed to be better, stronger, greater, more glorious, effective, and wonderful. And so we begin to see there's a, uh, a number of rebukes which come at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. There's one more that's coming, especially in chapter 9. But as the rebukes have been dealt out, they've been meted out judiciously by the Hebrew writer. We saw how that was an aspect of his fatherly and apostolic calling for the Christians who he was writing to. He calls them up to maturity. He rebukes them and warns them against apostasy, which we saw was a very real and very present danger to those who are merely in the church but not of the elect. And we then move from that place to dealing with the mature discussion topics that the, the writer says he wants to deal with. At verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And we saw last week at the beginning of that message how that does not mean we abandon the principal aspects of the gospel. It is not what the Galatians thought where they start off by grace through Christ, that the operation of the Spirit comes to them through God's gracious gift, and then they have to switch gears into their effort. No, building on the foundation is attending to the foundation. And building on the foundation of Christ means to operate within the gospel as it's understood and taught by Jesus himself. When we, when we discuss moving on in those terms, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, therefore let us leave, it's not a leaving so as to depart, but rather just as a first grader does not relearn everything in kindergarten but builds upon, so also these Christians in being called up to maturity are being invited by the Hebrew writer to use the foundation as a place to build on, not simply to uh, adore and and hold in high regard, but never uh, actually adorn. The, the, these Christians are being told, commanded, encouraged to build upon their faith and to actually set up structure about their faith. And so in so doing, after dealing with the problems, now the Hebrew writer is beginning to interact with all of those things which he considers to be doctrinal 
results of meditating on those things which require spiritual maturity uh, to meditate on. And so this is his entire goal. And in fact, if the Hebrew Christians had been more mature, this would be chapter 1. But as it is, it's chapter 7. And the reason it's chapter 7, as we've seen in the, in the last six teachings, is that the Hebrew writer is addressing heresies that were common to the church at this time. And those heresies have been faithfully recorded through the transmission of this letter down through the ages, through the scribes and the, the priests who copied it over the centuries. And they have come down to us, and we are very grateful that they're here because we are often in the same danger that these initial Christians were in. These initial Christians were in a danger of reverting back to what is called the elementary principles of the world. That is, that they were moving away from Christ, or they were tempted to remove their trust in Christ alone and to revert back to a keeping of the law code in order to establish righteousness. And the provisional law code being set aside is the major point of the book of Hebrews. And the reason why is not because it was insufficient in that it was evil, but rather it was not able to make perfect those who were under its realm or scope. And so at this point, having demonstrated that it is necessary to hold fast to Christ, to have true faith and obedience, which go hand in hand, the Hebrew writer then begins to interact with portions of the Old Covenant, which were shadows and types pointing forward to Christ, and demonstrations of how God's world works. When I say demonstrations of how God's world works, we're going to see in chapter 7 how this relates to the aspect of tithing, and how this actually informs how we should approach considering what has passed away in the setting aside of the Old Covenant and what remains in full force. And that remain, those things which remain have to do with the nature of God's world, not simply the Mosaic Covenant. And so we, we see all of this, however, in the context of Jesus' eternal priesthood. This is where it is a building from the foundation of the gospel that Christ has finally set aside or done away with sins. And that's really my main point, is that Christ's eternal priesthood, and that's really the Hebrew writer's main point, is that his priesthood is the end of sin. And that it is a sure end, and you can be confident in it. And so looking at this chapter, I want to emphasize four things. Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham, the nature of tithing in that blessing, what that speaks about tithing and how that speaks to our obedience, whether we are obedient or not. I want to look at the end of Levi's priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron was one who was in the tribe of Levi and Levi or the Levitical priesthood was started by or headed up by Aaron, but it flowed on from there. And looking at the end of that priesthood, that gives way to the idea of Jesus Christ being the mediator of a better covenant. And as the mediator of a better covenant, we must understand what remains and what is set aside. And those things which remain are things which the Hebrew writer says it takes maturity to discern. Understanding that we finally move to the spiritual uh, kernel or center of this entire idea that Christ, as an eternal priesthood, has completely satisfied the wrath of God and any objections to the sin of his people. And that satisfaction that Christ has made in his atoning priestly work is final. 
this is probably the most important problem for the spiritual and psychological health of young Christians and old Christians alike, that they know with absolute certainty that their sin has been atoned for and that they can finally have peace with God. That's what the Hebrew writer is getting at. Be sure to enter into the rest of God. He means don't think, don't revert back to seeking to atone for yourself by completing the law or whatever law substitution you make on your own. And so getting into Melchizedek, the Hebrew writer demonstrates Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham as an example of the sort of scriptural account which requires maturity to parse or to to examine. He says, we want to move on to maturity, and after having finished the final rebuke and admonition, then chapter 7 really introduces this idea which he will interact with for the rest of the book. And this might begin to get repetitive for you when we get to chapters 8 and 9 and 10. We're going to be discussing Christ's priesthood over and over again. So hopefully you um, aren't going to, to become frustrated by the repetition. The point is that the Hebrew writer is saying that this is a magnificent doctrine, and through this magnificent doctrine, there are many implications and applications that we must tease out or parse out or, or wrestle with the text in order to draw out. And so having the maturity of God, we are going to interact with this text by the power of the Spirit. Melchizedek was the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God, that the name of, of God Most High is El Elyon, in the, in the Hebrew, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. If you're not familiar with this passage, I would encourage you later today to go and read Genesis 14. Abraham goes and defeats kings, and one of them is my favorite king in the Bible. His name is Cheddar Lammer, and uh, he's the only cheesy king in the entire Bible. Those of you who've ever eaten in my house, you may know that I, love, I absolutely love Cheddar. And so it's, it's a favorite story of mine. Nevertheless, Abraham returns. He slaughters five kings. And after this, it says that Abraham became afraid. I think that's an interesting event that after he defeated the five kings. I think what's going on there is he, he recognizes, I've just caused a news event that's worthy of spreading throughout the entire Mediterranean. And perhaps people who had allegiances with these kings were going to come and attack. Nevertheless, Abraham meets Salem, uh, uh, Melchizedek, who comes from Salem, the king of peace and the king of righteousness, as his name in, incurs and the place of his, his priesthood demonstrates. And this one, Melchizedek, comes out and offers to Abraham a meal. What is the meal that he offers? He offers bread and wine. And so we see already the beginnings of the aspect of the Eucharist in this account. But what happens is Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that he received in defeating those kings. Now, one of the things that's important to understand is the spoils of war are war materials. Are they not? You don't carry artwork into your war, right? Maybe, maybe some of you do. I don't know. You bring soldiers with shields and spears, knives, daggers, short swords, long swords, maybe some primitary artillery, whether it's you know instruments to throw rocks or throw large bolts or arrows. The items that Abraham gives to Melchizedek are the items of righteous warring. 
And those items which are given as a tithe are made up of precious metals, bronze, gold, silver, handcrafted wood, etc. These are spoils of war. Perhaps they had money with them. And, and certainly that would have been included in the tithe. And what he does in giving these to Melchizedek is he, he recognizes that God is the one who gave him a victory. Abraham went up against five kings. Now, we're not told how large Abraham's army was, but it certainly was not five kings worth of an army. It may have been one king's worth of an army. And Abraham recognizes the blessing of God in fulfilling God's promises that he made long ago and then tithes from that, recognizing that God is the one who gave the victory. Now, I want to just address a common concern that many people have whether or not Melchizedek is actually Jesus Christ as a pre-incarnate Christophany. And a Christophany, if you're, if you're not aware, is a pre-incarnate visitation or demonstration of Jesus Christ. And th there's a number of places in the Old Covenant which demonstrate this kind of an event where it's highly logical based on what happens in the text that that person who is, is named uh, is actually Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate manifestation. Now, I'm not too concerned whether or not Melchizedek is or is not. And I think there's something in the text that shows that he isn't. That's not the point. The point is that Melchizedek, from the text's perspective, looks like Jesus Christ. That is to say, in the reading of Genesis 14, the reading of Hebrews 7, everything that happens to and by Melchizedek, uh, all of those tell us something about Jesus. And whether or not he's a Christophany is not really important. And it, should we get hung up on that, we'll miss the main point. The main point is this, that Melchizedek, through what he did, is a type of Christ. Now, when we use the phrase type of Christ, we don't mean a kind of Christ, like we might talk about a type of bird or a type of animal. It's not, uh, it's not that Melchizedek was a version of Christ. By type, we mean that which is struck and imprinted on. If you've ever seen, many of you probably haven't seen, an old-fashioned typewriter, what happens is, or, or any sort of wood block or, or uh, physical striking, a dot matrix printer, um, what, what takes place is there is a symbol and let's just examine the, the letter A. What you have in the metal is you have a block. And then on the front of that block is the imprint or the embossment of the, t of the letter itself. And what takes place through the act of printing or the act of typing is you take ink, you place it upon that, uh, that letter or that striking uh, block, and you then hit it into something usually a piece of paper or a piece of wood, and what is left behind is the imprint of the type. And so when we talk about typology, we're not talking about kinds of Christs or little versions of Christs, but rather symbols, elements, representations, representations of Christ himself. And that is what Melchizedek is in this story. And this is what the Hebrew writer is saying, is that in the text, he is without father or mother or genealogy. That is to say, he shows up and no one knows where he comes from, and he disappears without any description of his passing away. And so, obviously, if Melchizedek is not a Christophany, then he does have father or mother, father and mother, but he doesn't have it in the text. That is, when we read Moses, when we read Genesis, there's no description of Melchizedek. Melchizedek simply is before Abraham comes about. And 
you can see, somewhat see why it would be fitting if this was a Christophany, whether it is or not, in the text, he doesn't have father or mother, nor does he have beginning of days nor end of life. Now, I'm perfectly okay with him being a Christophany, but I don't think that harmonizes with, um, with the end of verse 3 nor later on in this, in this chapter. Nevertheless, the point is this, that Abraham recognizes Melchizedek's greatness. And so from the standpoint of the narrative, having no record of genealogy, nor having any end of his life, that is, neither birth nor death, in the text, he represents an eternal priesthood. It never says that Melchizedek passes away. And so in Abraham's tithing, he recognizes the spiritual authority that Melchizedek has. He yields up to Melchizedek as a representative of God, a tenth of the spoils of war, recognizing that the entire battle belonged to the Lord. Verse 4, see how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Verse 7 and 8 then show us that this is the pattern of spiritual, the, the spiritual pattern behind the nature of tithing. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. I love that verse because what it tells us when you go back to the time of the Exodus, that when before, uh, before the Exodus, when Jacob and his sons went down into Egypt, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And we see that the import of the promises of God inform that action. You have Pharaoh as the king of Egypt, and you have Jacob, the one who has the promises. Who does the Bible say is greater? It says Jacob's greater because he, he blesses Pharaoh. That's a side point, but it's an important thing to begin to use the New Testament and the apostolic information, the apostolic understanding of the scriptures and the righteousness of God to inform how you read the Old Covenant. Verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So through Melchizedek's type and shadow, through his representative act in the scriptures, he is pointing forward to a time where the one who does not die will receive these tithes and offerings. Though Abraham had the promises of God, he tithed to Melchizedek because he recognized the greatness of him. Now at this point, we see the, kind of the opposite of what Jacob does with Pharaoh. Jacob doesn't receive tithes from Pharaoh. They, re they exchange money in order to have bread or flour. But nevertheless, they, they are preserved through God's sovereign dealings, and Jacob, who has the promises of God, is recognized as the greater. But here, Melchizedek receives tithes, and then he blesses Abraham. In doing this, Abraham recognizes that the entire victory belongs to the Lord. And here is why it's important. Here's why the Hebrew writer says, as mature Christians, we need to engage with these things according to the gospel of Christ, is because these have application to Christians. Tithing, therefore, is not something established in the law of Moses. The common number one objection that most young Christians, especially if they grew up in the church, to the doctrine of tithing is that, brother, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. And therefore, tithing has been set aside. Tithing did not start in the law. Neither did circumcision. The point, be, which, you know, we all recognize that circumcision persists through the baptism, and yet we have this issue with tithing. Nevertheless, the point is that these have spiritual import for you today. Tithing was not set aside 
in the law that was changed, as we're going to see in verse 12. So the question of, of our spiritual maturity is when we read Hebrews 7, do we just simply gloss over what's going on with Abraham and Melchizedek, or do we emulate the faith of Abraham? In emulating the faith of Abraham, if we are true sons and daughters of Abraham, then we will recognize the import of Christ through our tithing. Now, the, the people that we tithe to today are the administrators of the church, and they use it as a stewardship in order to spread the gospel and preserve the health of the church, be that through sending that money to missionaries, using that money for godly purposes, what have you. They are not priests who live forever, but they are representatives of the one who lives forever. This is actually so important of a doctrine that it informs all of your ecclesiology. If you do not recognize the doctrine of Christ so as to see that tithing is a way by which God has established the world and not simply something that was in the Mosaic Code, then you don't even understand the church at all. And we've, we've discussed this, and this isn't the major point of chapter 7. The major point is actually something more, but we can't get to the end, which is the setting aside of sins once and for all, without recognizing that that goes hand in hand in forming our obedience today. So this is an example of Abraham's tithing, and it's quite important. And by this, we see that Melchizedek is greater, and that tithing, of the rendering of, of goods recognizing that the entire victory belongs to the Lord, rendering of those goods to one who is greater proves, according to the Hebrew writer, by his spiritual wisdom, that the priesthood of Levi is less than the priesthood of Melchizedek. Therefore, that priesthood will not remain, and it will be set aside. Verse 9, one might, this is his, his uh, application. He, he resolves the narrative to make a spiritual point, which is this. One might even say that Levi himself, who, re uh, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. That is to say, the Levites were established by God to uh, continue and persist the worship of Yahweh in the land of Israel, and those people were not given a piece of land by which they could you know, execute trade and sow vineyards and plant crops, they had to rely on the faithfulness of God's people to bring the tithe to the storehouse. And in bringing the tithe to the storehouse, the Levites were able to eat. If you were here when we discussed these things from 1 Corinthians, you may remember this. God has established in the same way that this is how those who share the gospel are to uh, be provided for. But th what he's saying here is that Levi himself was federally represented in Abraham. That is, as Abraham was tithing, Levi was in Abraham in the way that God counts history. Verse 10, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is one of those great and important ideas through, through the New Testament, which we see federal representation is a right and holy thing in the way that God considers humanity. Those who object to the doctrine of original sin because they didn't make that choice in Adam don't understand how God works, nor how God sees things. And there, there are many human examples. Uh, one of my favorite Reformed rappers is a guy by the name of Shai Lin, and he has a great uh, analogy and illustration. He says, for those who reject this, that he says they're hypocrites because they actually already believe it, for example, and his example is in basketball right? You have personal fouls and you have team fouls. 
What happens in a team foul? One person commits the transgression or the trespass, and the whole team gets penalized. And you, you're all okay with that. Well, those of you who like basketball, you're okay with that. So the point is that we already have things in our life that tell us that federal representation is true. Nevertheless, verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? And so he says, because Melchizedek came before Abraham and because Levi tithed through Abraham, that means Levi's priesthood is subordinate to Melchizedek's priesthood. Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And this informs how we read the law of God. The priesthood and the law go hand in hand, and those things which concern what is called the ordinances within the commandments, those things are, are, what in, are, are those which are in view in this passage, those things that are set aside. By showing the necessity of perfection apart from the Levitical system, we see through the Hebrew writer's intention the need for another according to the greater order which came before. And that greater order which came before has exactly one member. Now, again, this is why it's so important to move past the discussion whether Melchizedek is a Christophany or not. Melchizedek, if he's not a Christophany, he his order, which is named after him in the text, did not originate with him. Verse 15, this becomes more, even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. This is why, again, I think the text gives a lot of weight to the argument against Melchizedek being a Christophany, but I've gone back and forth throughout my life a few times on this, so I'm not really too, I, it's not too important. Verse 16 this one, that is the priest who arises, has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And what, what the Hebrew writer is saying here is that there were those Levites who were deemed to be priests through their genealogical descent. It's kind of like with the kings of old. We remember that the, you know, a king is installed as a king because he's the son or the daughter uh, of a king, right? The king or queen are appointed and established. They receive the line through heredity. And here he's saying that that was a temporary system and a much greater system has come about, not one that's based on who he or she was born from, but rather this example through Christ, who is one who is the firstborn from the dead. That is one who has an indestructible life. Verse 17 shows us that the father himself is testifying of the son. If you remember back to chapter six, we saw that there were two things that God gave to those who were to inherit the promises. He said the promises themselves were given and so they could trust in them. And then because he had no one greater to swear by, he himself made an oath, right? We see the exact same pattern here in this chapter where Jesus is described as a priest and then it says that God himself or God the Father witnessed of Christ. That is, he testified. He, he made an oath in, in the eternal court, if you will. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him and the witness is the Father, the one who describes these things. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Christ's genealogy does not determine his priesthood because he's of the tribe of Judah. And this is so important because at the time of the, the first century church, there were these people coming by uh, who were attempting to pervert the, the simplicity of the faith of the Christians 
trying to get them to regress back into those things which are called elementary or weak principles of the world. That is, things like do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, or disputes about genealogies or chronologies or astrologies. These things which have very, uh, they sound wise but are actually, actually completely foolish, these are the things that these Christians need to war against because they will actually cause you to drift slowly and slowly away from the pure doctrine which is that Christ is an eternal priesthood and has satisfied sins once for all. By the Father's establishing of the eternal priesthood, he testifies to the setting aside of the former one. The Father himself sets aside the former priesthood, and at the very same time, he establishes a new and better covenant. And this is really the central point of the Hebrew writer. Because Christ's priesthood is eternal, because it continues by virtue of his life, which is eternal and everlasting, there is no need for the appointing of a new high priest every single year. And the reason why is because that priesthood was never adequately dealing with sins. It was merely putting off and showing the need for a final dealing with sins. At the same time that the father passes aside or sets aside the old covenant, he simultaneously in appointing Christ to an eternal priesthood ushers in and releases upon his people the new and better covenant. This is so important to understand. We do a lot in our church to emphasize the importance of the old covenant and how it informs us because we think that there has been a great maligning of the promises of God and, and a, a destroying of the law such that it is actually ungodly. The New Testament, as well as Psalm, especially Psalm 19, 119, talk about the law using terms like holy, righteous, good, perfect, uh, the law is, is a good thing for those who use it lawfully. And so there, there needs to be a distinguishing. The improper use of the law is to use it in a way as to justify yourself, but we see that the law could not do that. And so because it could not do that, those aspects which were going to pass away did pass away. Now, be, in saying that, we are not saying that God has changed his mind but rather those things which distinguished Israel from the Gentiles, those things which were only merely pointing to Christ, those have been set aside, while the moral and common understanding of the law still remains in force. And so understanding the better covenant, we see that we're actually able to do the law from the heart. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its, because of its weakness, uh, weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that hope is not simply the announcing of the promise as a uh, doctrinal fact. God does not declare the new covenant as an idea that's detached from reality or an idea that just simply needs to be uttered. There is a new covenant and it's better. He announces the new covenant and he does it in an objective sense by his testimony, and also a subjective and relational sense by rooting it and tying it into the person of Jesus Christ. This better hope is not propositional but objective. That is to say, it doesn't matter whether you or I receive the truth. There is an objective sense by which it is true by the objective observer of truth who is the Father. And it is not based on my reception of the promise. 
but on God's oath. This is why the book of Hebrews is constantly trying to destroy false assurances and to establish righteous and wonderful assurances that are based on the covenantally faithful promises of God. And that being the basis, we actually are able to to move past those things which are constantly tripping us up. Verse 20, it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made with were made such without an oath, but this one who was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. If you've ever taken out a mortgage, uh, you know that there is an, an interaction with the bank and you are uh, establishing yourself as one who is guaranteeing to pay. And they, on the other hand, are establishing that they will be the guarantor of the receipt of the loan. That is, they pay off whoever is selling the house, right? They accomplish something, and then you promise to pay. And in order, because they don't take you at your word, part of the interaction is if you don't pay, you lose the house. Why? Because there's no sufficient guarantor. There is no one who can create a guarantee in a mortgage by which the bank will simply take you at your word, right? This is the opposite of the new covenant. Now, I'm not saying that mortgages are the opposite of the new covenant. I'm saying what's going on in a mortgage through the type or through the the mechanisms, it's the exact opposite because what God says is he promises and he himself, the one who gives the grace, is the guarantor. He promises the house and he makes the payments. And Jesus himself is the guarantor of this covenant. Again, the truth is not simply objective. We saw that it was not merely propositional, although the fact of the new covenant is true. It is objective, that is, it's not based on your reception or my reception. Our understanding of the truth of the new covenant does not change the reality. And so there, there go all the postmodern views of truth. Your reception or my reception or lack thereof does not change the reality of the new covenant. But also, it is not simply objective in some sort of stoic fashion or stoic view of truth, but it is relational. It is based on being in Christ. Christ himself is the proof proof of God's upholding of his oath. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. This is exactly the import of the doctrine of Christ's reigning priesthood. That is, in his office as priest, he has made a atonement, and that atonement is sufficient, and that atonement does not set aside because he still stands. The act of the old covenant priest leaving the Holy of Holies after he had performed the ceremony that he was commanded to do necessarily requires another atonement the next year. Because as the priest enters into the Holy of Holies, he first makes an atonement for his own sins. And then he's able to atone for the sins of the people. But see, what Christ has done, the whole point of the book of Hebrews, is Christ, by his own blood, offered up an atonement to the Father. And standing in the eternal temple, by the Spirit of God, he lives continually. And that that fact that Christ does not leave that temple means that there is no longer a sacrifice of sins. This is the double-edged nature of the sword that we heard just a few chapters ago, and we'll hear again, that those who set aside Christ have no hope because there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. 
For those who are under the condemnation of the law, that is a horrible thing. But at the same time, that very doctrine that there no longer is any sacrifice for sins also simultaneously means that there's no need for a sacrifice for sins any longer. Christ has completely done away with sins for those who are of the elect of his people. Verse 25, consequently, he, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. In his atonement, there is, no, there is absolutely no uh, chance of an imperfection in the atonement, nor some sort of sin that Christ himself would commit in his offering up of the atonement for the people. And this was kind of shadowed and typed by the fact that the priests of old would have ropes tied about them so that if they blasphemed before God or, or sinned before his presence at the Holy of Holies or, or in some way maligned God's character and was so struck dead that they would be able to drag him out, right? There's no chance for that with Christ. Christ's priesthood is eternal and it is perfect. And therefore, because it is eternal and perfect, Christ persists in the holy place making intercession for them. Christ's persistence in serving as priest between God and his elect highlights the greater aspect of the new covenant. You and I do not exist in a covenant where we have to constantly wonder whether or not we have peace with God. That is what the new covenant means. It does not mean that we don't have to obey. It does not mean that we aren't encouraged to keep faith with God. It, does, it also does not mean that the actual uh, way in which we lives our, live our lives is of no consequence because we still have forgiveness. No, the, the way that the new covenant is better is not that obedience is no longer required, but that obedience is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. But that can only happen if we know concretely that we have peace with God. And that is the very foundation for all true obedience and faith. Through the old covenant, there was a continual reminder of sins, both before God and the people. This is really important. Every time the priest would come into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, which God himself commanded, he would be reminded of the people of God's sins against him. And that reminder was not merely for the priest, and it was not merely for the people, but it was also for God. That reminder of the necessity to send the Son. Not in a way that God forgets, but in a way that God is continuing to allow himself to be reminded. That is, in the Old Covenant, we see time and again these memorials which God sets up and tells the people of God to set up. And at times it says that when you come by this memorial, you'll remember. But at the same time, there are things in the law which are set up as God's reminder. And it's not that God forgets, but rather that through his covenant system, he wants the people of God to be connected to him. And that reminder of their sins works both ways. It reminds him that there needs to be an atonement, and it reminds the people of God that they can't come before him. See, even in the old covenant, though there was an atonement, and that atonement was temporarily effective, it didn't allow the people of God to come before it merely allowed them to continue and persist in the land. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting, and by that language we mean it was fitting to how God considers the things, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. On the, on the contrary, all of the Levitical priests were none of those things. They were not holy 
priests, although they were cleansed. They were not innocent. They themselves were guilty and as such had to make an atonement as they entered in. They were not unstained, but were stained. They were not separated from sinners, but they themselves were a representation of the people's sin. And from that, they were not exalted above the heavens, but they were in the earthly tabernacle or temple. Therefore, Christ being the guarantor of a better covenant, having a priesthood which is eternal and unstained and holy and separated from sinners, Christ, because he made a perfect sacrifice, has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's the entire point of the book of Hebrews. That verse is really kind of the center, and as we get to the rest of the chapters, the Hebrew writer is going to re-enter into that discussion over and over again. We'll see this in great detail. The point is this, that God's grace in the new covenant is seen that he relates to us as those who, like Abraham, are recipients of the promise. And those recipients are not those who continually break the covenant. You understand the difference? Old covenant, those who are the receptors of the promises of God, they believe by faith and are justified by faith, but they live in an administration of the covenant by which they continually offer up sacrifices before God. We, those in the church, those who are truly elect, also are the receptors of the promises of God, but we live under the new covenant and that new covenant reality which has been made manifest by the work that Christ did in a real body, in a real place, on a real cross, that that action and his subsequent entering into the spiritual heavenly uh, tabernacle by the Holy Spirit, that that action has created a reality which we are blessed by. And that blessing being the new covenant is the surety that I have peace with God. In offering up himself, Christ has settled for all time the question of what, to be, what ought to be done about our sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the chief tactic of Satan for you, especially if you are beginning your walk with God, that you continually think to yourself, I've got to do something to atone. I've disappointed God and I need to clean up my act. And if you, if you revert to that, if you hear these warnings in the book of Hebrews and you constantly are turning inward to examining your heart to see if there's any darkness in it and seeking what you could amend and seeking what you could put right, then you are not looking by faith to Christ. Looking by faith to Christ is a turning away from oneself, a looking towards an objective priest who stands continually for you making intercession. And that looking away is the act of faith. That is the act of obedience by the new covenant. And from that stream all the tangential leaves and branches of the aspects of sin in your life. But what the strategy of the enemy is, is for you to get distracted and think that Christ's atonement is not sufficient. This is what it is that you're doing when you think to yourself, I've got to clean myself up. I'm not able to come before God's presence. I had a bad week. Uh, I can't really read my Bible today because I just sinned 10 minutes ago. If, you, if you've never had that thought, you're not operating in reality. The point is that the, the obedience that Christ commands in the new covenant is a looking away from yourself, looking to him. Now through the mercies of God, we in the new covenant... Are, in, are living at a time where Christ has made a sacrifice once for all and does not continually bring up our sin before God. 
I want you to think about what Christ is doing in his session. That is to say, in Christ's taking his seat, as we're going to look at in two weeks from now, that taking up of a seat before the Father is done as a high priest. And the high priest is working on the behalf of the people, not bringing a condemnation against them, but rather satisfying, making an atonement. And so, you know, what I want you to do is the next time you feel tempted to enter into that, you know, kind of inward depression or introspection that, you know, just kind of spirals, uh, I want you to then, I want you to stop and I want you to think, what is Jesus doing right now? Is he bringing up my sin before the Father? No. The answer is no. He is satisfied once and for all the atonement that needs to be made. It is done. It is absolutely done. And now that that atonement has been made, we can have peace with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. His excellence as the mediator of the new covenant is unknowable. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. God, the grace that you've shown us in the midst of our vile and wretched sin is, it's unthinkable. It's scandalous. It's surprising. It's greater than we could have ever imagined or hoped for. God, your gospel, being a sword, tells us of our great wickedness, but at the same time, it delivers from all sin and shame and weakness of moral fortitude. We pray that you would give us the grace to, in the moment of our temptation, after the sin, to wallow and to think unworthy of ourselves, that we would be given grace to fly to Christ, that we would turn our eyes upon him spiritually, that we would behold him standing there making an intercession. God, I pray that you would break in to our daily lives with this reality, that we would be able to, by your grace, destroy shame, which is so often a source of those besetting sins that we are tempted to engage in. God, that you would remind us of the importance of obedience, but at the same time, that we would renounce for all time any efforts to self-sanctify and self-atone. We pray that you would give us the grace to, in the moment of need, to come before your throne, to, to remember that we who've been redeemed and sanctified, we are in Christ now before your presence. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.